You're listening to the Scaling Culture Podcast, where we sit down with thought leaders who share their experiences building incredible workplace cultures. Our guest today is Rich Divini, best-selling author of The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. He is a leadership and human performance expert and retired Navy SEAL commander. During his career with the U.S. military spanning over 20 years, Rich completed 13 deployments overseas. As the officer tasked with training others for specialized command, Divini was intimately involved in SEAL selection process, pairing down a group of exceptional candidates to a small cadre of the most elite optimal performers. We are seriously honored and grateful to have Rich on the podcast. He also spearheaded the creation of a directorate, employing a strong emphasis on physical, mental, and emotional discipline to optimize the team's performance. Since retiring from the Navy, Rich has worked as a speaker, facilitator, and consultant at the Chapman & Co. Leadership Institute and Simon Sinek, Inc. In 2020, he founded The Attributes, Inc., where he currently serves as a CEO. And in January 2021, Rich released his book, The Attributes. Currently, Rich speaks and consults on leadership strategies, assessment and selection processes, and optimal performance techniques. He's worked with thousands of businesses, athletic organizations, and military leaders. His past clients, include American Airlines, Maya Inc., the San Francisco 49ers, Pegasystem, Zoom, and Deloitte. In this episode of Scaling Culture, Ron and Rich discuss what drove Rich to write his book, The Attributes, and some stories from his Navy SEAL days, the fundamental difference between skills and attributes, how businesses and leaders can identify the attributes and screen for them, stories about some of the most critical attributes of a high-performing team, and the dynamic subordination leadership style. Before diving into today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and rate the podcast and be sure to enjoy this episode as it's the last one before our summer break. And we promise it is loaded with great takeaways. We thank you all for listening to our show. And if you've not listened to all the previous episodes, make sure to check them out this summer and we will be back in September. Now on to the show. Welcome to another episode of the Scaling Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Lovett. And today with me all the way from Virginia Beach, I've got Rich Devinney with us. Rich, welcome. Ron, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, I was really excited, you know, um, when I saw you on, on the kind of roster of guests and we were just joking before the podcast and I was, I was, I, I was upset that we had to cancel based on weather because like, oh my God, are we going to get him back, right? And so I'm really happy and th- thankful you made the time to, uh, to join us. So thanks for that. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. So, so Rich, you've got um, you know, an unbelievable background, you know, and and you know, I, I think for someone who's so young too, um, you know, you you look like you're in your mid thirties, that's for sure. So <laughs> well, wanna, thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> I'd like to get your moisturizer cream if you could send me a bottle, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, you know, the the book, the attributes. I was curious, what what drove that? What was the starting point of saying, look, I need to write about this, and what what started you on that journey? Yeah. Um, well, you know, it started when I was still in the Navy. And of course, I did 21 years, uh, just about in the SEAL teams. And one of my roles, I was an officer in the SEAL team. So I, I was, I was in charge of several different SEAL uh, units. Um, but one of the roles I had during that time frame was I was placed in charge of the selection and assessment for one of our very, very specialized SEAL commands. And at this particular command, we'd we'd take a bunch of the kind of the top SEALs from all around the country and bring them to our command and put them through our own selection process for about nine months long. We'd get about a 50% attrition rate, which is okay because any assessment selection implies attrition. 
However, we what the what the command at that time wasn't good at doing was explaining why guys were attriting. And so one of the things they asked me to do is look into that, see if I could articulate why guys were. And um, what I this, when you say that you, why why people were falling off. That's right. Why 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 people were not making it through? Yeah, um, it. Uh, because these again, these were the top guys, you know, uh, from around. The, they had stellar records. Um, and um, and one of the things that I had to do was look at performance holistically and ask the question: What what is performance? What what are we what are we actually looking at? What drives it? What makes it happen? And that led me to this distinction between skills and attributes. And so. Well, as I as I dove into these attributes, these innate qualities that make us and cause us to behave the way we do, I recognize that, in fact, when we were building these teams and and whatever teams you're building, you're looking more and you want to look more at the innate qualities because ultimately you want you want a team to be able to, not only survive but thrive in uncertainty, challenge, and stress. And when uncertainty, challenge, and stress hits, it's very difficult to apply skills. We're actually looking for these these attributes. So that's really got keyed me in on it. And then, of mm -hmm. course, when I retired in 2017, I began working with some friends, Simon Sinek and Chapman and Co., talking about leadership. But I also talked about high-performing teams that I'd often get the question, hey, Rich, you know, we're building these dream teams, best marketer, best salesperson, best whatever. But a lot of times what's happening is they're great for a, a few days, a few weeks when everything's going well. But as soon as things go sideways, the team seems to go toxic and fall apart. And for me, it was an instant answer is like, well, the reason is because you're picking your teams based on the wrong things. You're picking teams based on skills versus attributes. And that's a, a trap most of us fall into when we're putting together groups or even assessing performance. And so how did you get to the attributes? So like, what was the process or that you, that, that, that you found these attributes, you know, it was just talking yeah. to research. Like, I was curious how, well, the first thing I had to do was think about at the time what my own my own Navy SEAL training. Navy SEAL training, it's uh, the basic training is in San Diego, California. It's called BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition Slash SEAL Training. It's six months long, and it's some of the, it's known as some of the toughest training in the world. And 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 in Navy SEAL training, basic Navy SEAL training, you have about a ninety percent attrition rate. So out of out of a class of say. Like I think mine started with 160 odd people. We graduated 38. Those are normal numbers. Um, and so, um, but one of the things they do in Navy SEAL training is that they just beach beach you up constantly. I mean, they you spend hundreds of hours running around with big heavy boats on your head, hundreds of hours exercising with 300 pound telephone poles and running around with those things, and then freezing in the surf zone. At the time, I kind of start when I was thinking about it. I said, well. I had been on hundreds of combat missions overseas in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places. I had been on thousands of training evolutions. Never on one of those did I ever carry a heavy boat on my head or a telephone pole on my shoulder. So what they were doing to us in SEAL training wasn't in fact training us. They were in fact putting us into these situations that were teasing out qualities to see if we had what it took to be SEALs. And so I started diving into this distinction and attributes and said, okay, what are attributes? You know, how do they distinguish themselves from skills? And certainly really, I mean, just to baseline everybody, um, skills and attributes are inherently different. Skills are not inherent to our nature. We, we don't, we're not born with the ability to ride a bike or throw a ball or shoot a gun. We're trained to do those things. We learn how to do the things. We're taught to do those things. Skills also direct our behavior in known and specific environments. So here's, here's how and when to shoot a gun or drive a car or throw a ball. Right. Or a bike. And then, of course, because they're very visible, skills are very easy to measure and assess. You can see how well anybody does any one of those things. This right. is why we often get seduced by them when we're, uh, when we're picking teams, because you can put them on a resume. You can read stats. You can look at scores. 
What skills don't tell us, however, is how we're going to show up when the environment becomes stressful, challenging, and uncertain. Because in an unknown environment, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to apply a known skill. So this is when we lean on our attributes. Attributes, on the other hand, are inherent to our nature. So all of us are born with levels of situation awareness, patience, uh, adaptability, resilience. Now, they develop, we can develop them over time and experience, but you can see levels of this stuff in small children. We as parents know that there are some kids who are just naturally more patient than other kids, right? So you see levels of this stuff. So they're inherent to our nature. There's a nature and nurture effect to attributes. Attributes don't direct our behavior. They inform our behavior. So for example, my And son, they're a natural state, right? Like that's your natural state. It's a natural state, right? And so my son's natural levels of perseverance and adaptability and resilience uh, inform the way he showed up when he was learning how to ride his bike the very first time and he's falling off a dozen times doing so. So skills are the pre, or attributes are the precursor, uh, prerequisite to any skills development. Um, and then attributes, because they're hidden in the background, they're very difficult to see, <laughs> which means they're very difficult to assess, measure, and test. The, the, the most visible they are is during times of stress, challenge, uncertainty. And so when I started to peel back these onions, I started to kind of realize that, hey, there's a difference between these things and they get conflated all the time. And we have to start looking at these qualities because these qualities will tell us whether or not candidates have what it takes to do the job. We could always teach the job, but can they do the job? So quick, funny story to illustrate this point. This is an old story from SEAL training. And this, I, from what I heard, this happened before I got there. I, I went through in mid-90s. This happened before that. But one of the things you had to do when you first showed up to SEAL training was, was do a 50-meter swim. So you jumped in the pool. You swam to one end of the pool. You swam back, back to the end of the field. Well, the story goes that this one kid shows up, and the instructor tells him to jump in the pool. He jumps in the pool, sinks right to the bottom, and basically proceeds to walk along the bottom to one side and then walk along the bottom to the other side comes up gasping for air, near dead. And the instructor looks at him and says, what the hell were you doing? And the, the kid looks at the instructor and says, I'm sorry, instructor, I don't know how to swim. And so the instructor says to him, that's okay, we can teach you how to swim, right? And so the idea is, I mean, Navy SEALs are waterborne special operations units. Um, but the idea is, do you have what it takes to be a Navy SEAL? We can always teach a skill. We can always right. teach you how to swim, but do you have the grit, the courage, the, the, the adaptability, the resilience? Um, do you have that? This kid obviously did. And it's like, okay, that's, if you have the balls and the courage to show up to SEAL training without right. knowing how to swim, you're exactly who we want. Right. <laughs> right? And, and to walk and hold your breath. I mean, and walk on. and hold your breath, right? That's badass, right? So we can, yeah. we can teach you how to shoot. We can teach you how to swim. So that's the difference between skills and attributes. So, so and there's a quote that I think was quoted by you, which is, you know, train for certainty and educate for uncertainty. And that's what you're talking about, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, and that's from the Joint War College, at least where I got it from. Um, and it's this idea that training is typically for skills. Uh, it's for understanding and doing something repetitively in terms of understanding the, the, the dynamics and the, uh, the kind of didactic uh, necessities of whatever it is you're doing. So we train how to shoot uh, straight. We train how to drive a car. We train how to type, right? All these skills is training. Education is different. Education is that you're, you're actually, you're developing new experiences and new mental models around an environment that serve you when you get into uncertainty, because now you have different uh, catalogs and categories in your, in your occipital lobe, which is our, right. our, our Dewey Decibel system of our brain, right? We have different things we can draw upon to say, okay, wait a second, this is recognizable, recognizable because I've seen some of this experience before. So, so education is much more holistic and is often 
more attribute type development stuff versus just rote training. Both are necessary, right? We need to, there are certain skills we need to con continually to train on, right? The, the basketball player has to train on their free throw shots, right? But the basketball player, any, any true pro will know that as, as much as I sit there and shoot the ball, right? I still need to get in the game and do some experiential education, right? So I can figure out what's going, figure out how things are moving because that's mm -hmm. also part of the overall experience. So, you know, I was thinking when you were talking about obviously the test and trying to trickle these attributes out essentially um, with the, the, the cold water and boats above your head and, and poles, how, how are you guiding or suggesting that, that in, in corporations, people do that in the interview? To find right. certain attributes. Well, I'm certainly not putting them in the in the freezing surf zone, or, right? <laughs> or making them run around with telephone poles. The interesting about attributes. So, so a couple of things we have to understand is first of all, the attribute list required for a Navy SEAL or a SEAL team is going to look different than the attributes required for a business person or a surgeon or an athlete or a teacher. You name it. So the first thing that we do when we go into businesses to help them is we help them figure out what does that attribute list look like for your business and for your specific positions. And once you have that list, you can then start saying, okay, what are some of those things that I can do experientially? Rich, sorry, those? I just want to go back to that for one second. How sure. do you, what does the process look like to figure that out for those listening? Yeah, like yeah I mean, so what we do is we often go into organizations and we start with, say, their values. Okay, what are right. those things you value? Um, and like truly, the, the, the companies that have done this like with some thought to say, hey, these are the things we value as an organization. Uh, we use their values to help tease out what those values look like. Okay, what does it look like? Because value is fine. I mean, I can value integrity. I can value um, honesty, right? But what is that? What is the behavior attached to that value? That's what you want to understand. Right. Because because once you understand what the behavior, what does that look like for this company, this team? Then you say, okay, what are those attributes that are required that are expressed in that inside of that behavior? So so an example would be if you're if you have an attribute of innovation, then the, the, the attribute, sorry, if the, yeah. if the value is innovation, the attribute yeah. is curiosity, right? Cause if you're not curious, you can't be innovative. Absolutely. Right. So, so that was, and, and even innovative. So we start to get, as we've done, as I've continued this work since publishing the book, you recognize, and, and I actually realized this when I was writing the attribute skills list can get a little bit mushy at the center, right? It's, it's like, Ooh, maybe that's a skill, maybe that's attribute attribute. Um, and so I write about 25 attributes. There are way more than 25. Okay. Um, innovativeness could be an attribute, um, but ultimately when you take it down to the core, what is that? Well, that's curiosity. Anybody right. who is innovative, there's curiosity. And, and again, start to get those elemental levels. There are people who are open-minded and there are people who are curious and there are people who are both. But for example, the, you're not going to necessarily have an innovative um, person if someone's just open-minded but not curious because open-mindedness for example as an attribute is more of a passive thing right in other words ron i go visit you and you say hey rich i'm gonna take you to this local restaurant and you're gonna try food that you've never tried before and i'm like okay cool right yeah, you're, you're not even curious you're just going on with the that's, that's just open-minded right or i go visit you and i'm like hey ron take me to a restaurant that has food i've never tried that's curiosity so curiosity has a proactivity aspect mm. to it which innovation and innovative thought and innovative thinking requires, right? So, right. so when you start dialing these, back, these things back, I'm really curious about getting to those elemental kind of atomic level things. Um, and that would be an example. Yeah, very interesting. And so let's go to the next level. Once you get there, how, you know, how are companies kind of screening or looking for those things in, yeah. in an interview? What are you seeing? So, so 
so a, a lot of times what you do is you say, okay, let's take a look at what you're doing already because, because you, can, you can look at what you're doing already and oftentimes you can take what you're doing already and, and just tweak it. Um, ultimately, what attribute um, assessment is about is understanding the peripheries of what you're seeing. So it's almost like you stop looking at the actual thing and you start looking around on the edges. So let me give you an example because I use this yeah. in terms of sales. Say, Ron, you and I wanted to hire someone who was great at sales, okay? And we told this person on Friday, okay, come in Monday morning and you're going to sell us this pencil, okay? And we go home for the weekend, come in Monday morning, the guy shows up, guy or gal shows up, and they proceed to give us a kick-ass presentation on selling the pencil. And you and I look at each other, it's like, oh my gosh, that was awesome. The problem is we would not have learned much. All we would have learned was this person is very good at preparing and delivering a sales presentation. So instead, what we do is we say to this person, hey, come in Monday and you're going to sell us this pencil. Then we come in Monday morning. But when we come in Monday morning, we, t we sit the person down and say, hey, the plan has changed. You're no longer selling us this pencil. You're going to sell us this coffee cup. Okay. And oh, by the way, there's no audio visual. So just do what you can. Okay. Now, at this point, as the assessors, you and I are going to have to make a very conscious, deliberate decision to divorce ourselves from skills assessment. Okay. Because what we're about right. to see is going to be ugly. But now we're looking at the peripheries. How is this person behaving? Are they just, are they humorous about it? Are they picking up things on the fly? Are they kind of creative? Are they just having fun with it? Are they kicking the dirt? Are they complaining? Are they blaming, right? We're now looking at the peripheries. This is now looking at attributes. So attribute assessment has to be done on the peripheries. Oftentimes you can take what you have going on. You can say, okay, I see, I see what I'm looking at, but what are those things that are happening out here? And the out here stuff, the periphery becomes a lot more clear if you throw some stress challenge and I'm so interesting into the equation. That's really interesting. And you know, it's funny as we've been going through interviews, we've kind of changed directions on how we typically would press for, for some of these attributes like change or innovation. And, and the reason for that is I, it, it hit me at one point, Rich, that it wasn't fair how we were pressing. We weren't doing the example that you're talking about. What we were doing is we were looking for examples of their work history. But to mm -hmm. me, it, it hit me that that wasn't fair because they might not be allowed to be innovative. And, right. and in their past job, and they could long for that. But if they're not given the opportunity and it's very policy driven, then all of a sudden we'd push them to the side. So we, we really started to, especially during the pandemic is go to people's personal lives. Like what have you done for yourself? Because you have the autonomy to make That's those right. decisions. That was our strategy of trying to find the authenticity, the authentic person. Does that make sense? Or it absolutely does. Uh, because again, you have to you have to take environment into account. And you know, and, and you and I have have some similar backgrounds in terms of we understand what, for example, personal security needs. And and when you're in that environment of of very um, high stakes, uh, and so the so the people that you are with also need to you need to trust them in a high stakes environment. And you know as well as I do, to, in the in the assessment selection part of that. So just just let's just take personal security for example. Um, uh, someone who doesn't know that business might think that a very important skill, a very important quality of a, of a, of a personal security person would be um, uh, to be able to shoot a gun uh, and, and hit a target, right? To be able to do accurate shooting. Well, you and I know that that is actually probably one of the least important qualities because one of the most important qualities is situation awareness, um, which has almost nothing to do with being able to shoot and hit a target. It has to do with how good is this person at understanding and recognizing aspects of the environment so they can pre predetermine and pre-see events before they happen. And right. you and I know I would take someone who couldn't hit the broad side of the barn for personal security if they were 
awesome at situations. They're like highly vigilant, right? They notice right. things, right? And then I just have some partner with them who could hit the who hit a target, right? Right, <laughs> right. Who had, who had the skill of hitting a target. But again, personal security is about anticipating something before it happens. That's if you do your job right, nothing happens. Which means the more important part of that business is situation awareness versus anything having to do with weapons manipulation. I literally had to to, to talk through. I, years ago, I did security for Al Gore, and he was coming to Canada, and you know, they said, "What kind of gun do you carry?" And I said, "Look." It's fisticus down here. We have no right. guns, right? Yeah. And they're like, yeah. what do you mean? It's Al Gore. I said, no, only police carry guns because he had he's not under Secret Service. He doesn't get police coverage. So you've got me. And yeah. and, so, and and honestly, if it comes down to guns, something's gone wrong. I mean, you're you're right. almost you've you've already failed your job because now you're in defensive mode or whatever. So you're absolutely right. It's all about the 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 pregame. And then this this is one of the misnomers or myth, myth, uh, the mythos that surrounds Navy SEALs or any special operations. Of course, special operations units and the SEALs, we're, we're good at shooting, we're good at skydiving, good at all that stuff. But our whole thing is about being masters of uncertainty. Our most important attribute is cunning because we want to basically see and, and, and look at how do we solve this problem in ways that no one, has, no one has ever thought of this so that we can get in and get out without being seen, without being noticed. I mean, the best, most SEAL missions are all about no shots fired, no blood spilled. You get in, get out, and, and you're basically ghosts. Um, but you don't hear a lot of that's not it's not sexy enough to put in the books and movies. So you're not going to hear a lot. Right. Of that. <laughs> but for that piece, I'm just curious, very quickly. For that, you have to have such trust with your team and the information. All this has to be very accurate to make a good decision. Correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and but this is why you pick the right people on the team, and right. and you and you rely on each other to uh, to 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 intake the appropriate information. Obviously one person can only intake so much. So if you have a whole team intaking information, then you have a, you have a, a, a real synergistic group mm -hmm. that is really noticing everything. Um, right. And that's when you have a very, very high performing team. And, and Rich, I know, and you talked about this, but in the book, the 25 hidden drivers of optimal performance, and you're, you're saying that, look, some companies may need or require different uh, attributes based on what they're doing. Are there, you know, are there from your experience, some lines in the sand, some must haves and some must have nots? Yeah. I, you know, when I was writing and in, in, uh, into the first few months of publication, I was hesitant to, to rate or rank the attributes <laughs> because I didn't want to put, because you know, again, you don't want to put, um, you don't want to put yeah. um, judgment on anything. However, uh, I recognized that that was a popular question and I didn't want to dodge it. So uh, so I kind of reneged and kind of looked at it again. What I would say is, uh, from a human experience, uh, I would I would say that probably the most important attributes to have uh, are the grit attributes. So courage, adaptability, perseverance, and resilience. Um, because if you don't have those, if you are, if you're low on those, you're going to have a pretty tough, miserable time. Um, because life in general requires grit holistically it requires courage it requires adaptability it requires especially courage. in a high growth company right especially i feel like that would be yeah. i feel like that wouldn't be as important if we just had a tire company that sold cot tires and you and me were working for our dad and it's been doing it for 20 years and there's not yeah. a whole lot of bumpy ride going on there right? yeah well i mean i mean regardless of what regardless of how comfortable or how certain your business or personal life is life will throw right uncertainty at you i'm covid 2020 alone taught us that right so so if we don't as individuals have uh have some have some of those grit attributes, then we're, it's going to be a tough ride. Yeah. Interesting. And you know, the one that, that stood out and I, I, I was quite interested about was narcissism. 
And it's like a little yeah. side of narcissism is good. T tell us about that. And then I had something else I want to talk to you about. Yeah, yeah. So that narcissism came in the drive category. And so, so what are the attributes that make up the driven person? And uh, I really thought a lot about this. And, and narcissism came up because ultimately I had to do a lot of soul searching. Whenever you write a book, you do soul searching. I think you know. <laughs> so you kind of say, okay, well, how does this work for me? And I asked myself the question, why did I become a Navy SEAL in the first place? And I asked myself the question, and I've asked a lot of my buddies that question. I mean, you're 18 to 22 years old, why do you do it? And ultimately, yes, we're patriots and all that stuff, but if someone says it's because you're a patriot, they're not telling you the full truth, right? What it is is because, you know, the, the primary reason is we wanted to be badasses. We wanted to see, I wanted to see if I could do something very few people could do. And that's, that goes for most of my compadres. They, they just, Hey, I'd love to see if I could do this. There's a bad, just make it, just make it and be, yeah. and be this James Bond like person, right? There's a hint of narcissism there. Narcissism at its elemental level is defined as uh, the desire to stand out, be adored, be recognized. That's its elemental thing. Now, obviously there's narcissistic personality disorder. That's the, that's the far end that's dangerous and it's malignant and it's toxic, but we all all, every single human being at some point in our lives wants to stand out, be recognized, be adored for something. Okay. So, mm -hmm. so there's a narcissistic strain in all of us. And I think to be honest about it to, uh, is to understand a, this is the, it's often the impetus and the spark that creates audacious goals. Like why else would you want to be a, a great podcaster, an Navy SEAL or an author or a singer or a president or whatever it is. So it sparks audacious goals. Um, and then if you properly management, it can be uh, properly manage it. It can be an incredible driver uh, because it, it, it pushes you. It says, I want to be that right. The, the cautionary warning comes with managing it. And the way we manage right. it is we keep very good, close tabs and understanding about who we're surrounding ourselves with the, the malignant, dangerous narcissists will always surround themselves with sycophants. Yes, men who tell them what they want to hear, who put them on a pedestal, who they're always the center of attention. They're always the, the, um, the, the, the spotlight and they don't get the truth. Right. Um, uh, Putin is a great example of this. Right. Um, but they, but the, the healthy narcissist or the, the healthy, the person who's metabolizing narcissism in a healthy way surrounds themselves with people who they love, they trust, who always tell them the truth when they need it, who always pull them back when they're getting a little bit out over their skis. Um, and who, in a group whom they are not always the center of attention, right? They're not right. always the person. It's, a, it's, a, it's an even exchange. And, and you can see this in one of the most um, narcissistic uh, communities out there, which people would say would, would be Hollywood. Some of the most healthy, famous stars out there, you can tell, are the ones who openly talk about how their family and their friends are their grounding units. And they stay grounded and they keep their people, they keep people around them that keeps them grounded keeps them human, keeps them all kind of uh, uh, in, in, in a zone. And that's a healthy metabolization. Uh, it's a healthy way to metabolize narcissism. It seems, it seems like also, and, and I, I don't know if you, did you see the, uh, the, the new show super pumped with uh, about Travis Kalanick? The, the oh, I haven't, guy? I haven't, no, you got to watch it. It's, okay. I just finished it. I thought it was fabulous. I didn't know the behind the scenes. Um, and, and I feel like he, the, he was, he was portrayed as a serious narcissist and, 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 and then you kind of question that. You said, yeah, but he, he needed some of that, to your point. When I was yeah. reading it, I wrote his name down because he needed some. But I felt like he wasn't balanced. And, and uh, you may um, agree once you watch it, not only to the point on having people around him that kept him grounded, but at least the way he was positioned in the show, he lacked self-awareness and taking responsibility. That, yeah. that Those were missing. And so he was just the narcissist ran away. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Accountability is a huge attribute for healthy uh, a healthy metabolization of narcissism. Um, but again, I mean, you, there's been studies that says the most some of the most successful CEOs on the planet, and these are not these are good people, right? They're not you know they're not the bad ones like the Bernie Madoffs. Are they all have a hint of this narcissism because they all this they they just they're driven in this way that I want to be the best, I want to stand out, but and you can stand out for good. I mean, you really can. Um, so. So the idea is understand and accept our all of our own narcissism. And if we understand it, we can name it, we can see it, and then we can manage it. And that's the most important thing is if we can manage it. And then we can use it. And it's very, very powerful. It's what caused a lot of us to become Navy SEALs in the first place. Well, I was just going to say, like, it feels like a superpower in some cases that the commander, whoever has to tap into at the right times, because mm -hmm. it also feels like, you know, the 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 degree of uh, individuals that that would have that you know, narcissistic, narcissistic fiber could become toxic when you put all those people together too, yeah, right? Yeah, you have to yeah. watch that. It's a very, it's a, it is a superpower. It's just a dangerous one. It's very volatile. So you got to be careful right. with it. You got to handle it with care. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. And what do you think about corporate environments? You know, we talk about performance and, you know, you hear stories and, I, you know, I haven't talked to anyone at the company, but like Amazon, mm -hmm. are they pushing performance? Is that hurting their culture because they're they're so focused on performance they've gone too far in some cases where you, you hear stories where you know people are now they're getting unionized people are unhappy they 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 watch every minute of their time what are your thoughts in in cultures that maybe push performance too far it should there be a balance well i think there always should be a balance but i i also think that i'm who am i to judge how someone runs their company i mean a company can certainly make a decision and and place performance at the apex what you're going to find is you may you may have some superior results but what you're going to also have is a lot of uh a lot of attrition uh you're going to have people who are not staying very long you're going to have unhappy workers right um that can work for a while but it doesn't work for the long haul unless your model is set up so you can always take in new people, right? I mean, and that's right. that's not a big that's not a big deal for you. But if you want to create a, a business that that goes the long that can play the long game, um, that establishes itself, that people who are fully dedicated and fully inspired by what they do every day, and they come to work feeling that, and they love the people they work with, then you have to focus on culture, and you have to focus on things other than performance. You have to start rewarding attributes versus just skills. Um, and so if you want, for example, if a, if a, a leader or CEO wants more empathy in their company, the first thing that that person has to do is start showing and display, they have to go first with the empathy, start displaying more empathy, and then they have to start rewarding that behavior when they see it. Right. Um, so the leaders, whatever they, whatever the leader wants, they have to first model and then second reward when they see it, whatever they want. And if they, if the leader does that, if the person in charge does that, they will start to see that filter throughout their organization, whatever it is. Right. Interesting. You know, I was also thinking back to the um, the Navy SEALs and that group of individuals. Um, I'd love to be a fly in the wall for some of that stuff. I don't think I could make it past, you know, day. I, I probably couldn't make it past the first half hour, actually. <laughs> but how, what is the balance between, you know, this, I'm, I'm the Iron Man. I'm going to, I'm, you know, I've got my, there's a small piece of nursing. I need to push through. I'm very competitive to, I need to trust this team and I need to be vulnerable with them. How did mm -hmm. they, how did that happen? Because I feel like those are competitive things that might be difficult to come together. It is, but one of the, one of the cool things about most military units and the SEALs is probably, the SEAL teams are probably one of the, one of the most expressive of this is that 
is the entire training system is designed to lean on your buddy. You cannot do it alone, right? You really can't. You're always leaning on your buddy. Um, and in, in, in buds, for example, I mean, there are two cardinal rules in buds when you're, when you're a trainee. That is never be walking. So you have, to, you have to be running everywhere and never leave your swim buddy, right? You always have to have that person with you. If you're caught alone without your swim buddy, you will get punished badly. Um, and so it's ingrained in you that you have a swim buddy, you have a team to rely upon. So you have that piece that we can't do that. I mean, you can't paddle those boats through that enormous surf without everybody working, right? You can't, you can't, you can't carry those logs, those 300 pound telephone balls without everybody pushed to doing it, putting their, putting it, pulling their weight. Um, so you have that piece, but the other piece is really, um, is really just a, a, an innate sense of humility. And people say, Ooh, humility. I mean, your Navy SEAL is humble. And I would say, yes, there are certainly some Navy SEALs who are arrogant. Okay. Um, uh, but mo for the most part, SEALs are very humble. And the reason is because the environment forces it. Okay. Any of us who are listening and you, I know this, uh, it's to be true. You, or you know, this to be true. We'll, we'll tell you, we'll know, I don't care how good of a swimmer you are. I don't care how good you are in the water. If you turn your back on the ocean, it will kill you. Okay. If you if you stop paying attention at twenty two thousand feet when you're jumping out of an airplane, you will die. Okay. The environment alone sets conditions of humility because you cannot be arrogant. You cannot approach the environment with ego. So add to that then the environment of combat and war. Okay. Um, and I used to tell this to, to my guys. Listen, um, you know the nine year old Somali kid who picks up an AK forty seven and pulls the trigger. If that, if that, if that gun is properly aimed, it would kill the 35 year old Navy SEAL who's trained for, for, for a decade plus in what they do, right? One bullet will do that, right? So, so you're almost, uh, so you have two elements going on there. You have this element of always being with your team and relying them on them and counting on them. And then you have this element of an environment that's looking to kill you at any cost. <laughs> and you, you have to approach it with humility. And so, so I think that's one of the ways that, that uh, the SEALs and the military can balance that badassery with a humility and a vulnerability of leaning on each other. I love that, but I, I'm, I'm struggling with how do we do that in the workplace? Because mm -hmm. we, can't, we can't take it to that level, right? How, yeah. do we, how do we get people in the workplace to rely on each other through the environment? Like, what are you, what are you, what are you seeing well, for those who've done it really well? I mean, it's really this, this idea of, of understanding that you need each other. So, so the concept, one of the concepts I talk about in the book is this, is this concept of how a high-performing team metabolizes and shows up in the real world. And, it's, and I talk about this idea that we usually, we usually think of, when we think of the task org of an organization, we think of this pyramid where the leader sits on top and the word flows down, which is obviously not how it shows up. We think of the, uh, the flat, hey, we're flat, we're all in this together, you know, no one's in charge, that uh, doesn't really work either. And then, of course, there's a really beautiful model from Robert Greenleaf, the servant leadership model, where the pyramids flipped up upside down and the leaders on the bottom. And we're, we're in service as the person in charge. We're in service to everybody. Um, it's OK, but that still doesn't tell you how a high performing team operates. How a high performing team operates is what I call dynamic subordination. And if you were to picture this, uh, you can picture it as like an amoeba or a blob. OK, what happens in a dynamic subordination environment is every single person in that team understands that challenge stress issues, whatever, can come from any angle at any moment. And when one does, the person who is closest to the problem and the most capable immediately steps up and takes charge and everybody follows. And then the environment shifts and someone else steps up. And it's a dynamic swap between leader and follower, right? You're, I also call it alpha swap, where that alpha position just hops based on the environment. So every high-performing team understands that regardless of what your 
rank position is. You are there for a purpose, and you're there to step up when you need to step up and recede when you need to, to, to recede. To do that takes trust and it takes vulnerability. I need to basically show all of my teammates all of my strengths on my sleeve and all of my weaknesses on my sleeve. So they know exactly when they're going to lean on me and they know exactly when I'm going to be leaning on them. So that vulnerability is required. You can do this in the workplace by just recognizing as a team, as a business, hey, everybody here provides value. Everybody does something that I can't do. And so you push those people forward or let them step forward and do their thing and say, hey, thank you, now recede. Okay, thank you, now recede. A quick example of this in the real world would be the um, a commercial airliner, right? All of us understand that the commercial airliner, the captain is the person in charge. No one debates that, okay? If the, if the airliner is taxiing out to take off and the captain gets a call from the maintenance person, right? And the maintenance person says, hey, I found a problem, you gotta turn around. No captain worth their wings is going to ignore that. They're gonna immediately subordinate to that maintenance person and come back. They're gonna bring the plane back to the gate. They're gonna get the, get the uh, plane, uh, get the sky bridge up there. They're gonna say, hey, oh shoot, we gotta get the, all the passengers off so we can fix this thing. But guess what? The captain doesn't step, step up and take charge of that either. Now the flight attendant steps up and deplanes the plane, right? So there's a swap going on because everybody steps up into their role and then recedes when they need to support. And that's how we can do this in the workplace by understanding what we're there to do, by showing our strengths and our weaknesses and starting to really lean on each other and say, hey, I need you and you need me. I love that. And, you know, we just did our quarterly planning, uh, a three-day planning session uh, end of April. And the one thing, um, you know, you know we, what we really want to do is, is have some exercise to really get to know each other. I mean, the one thing hands down this pandemic has done is it's broken relationships. People are not having the same water cooler talk. And, and in some cases, people don't even, that we're losing listening skills and they don't even have the skills they haven't been trained how to build relationships. Like we yeah. have, kind of have to go back to basics. And one of the things that we did was we had everybody present what their zones of genius, what their superpower, what their, what their, their top skills were. But what I missed uh, as you've been talking, Rich, is I should have done the other side too, which is where are your weaknesses? So you could also say, wow, Rich, you, you struggle with this. I know that that's my superpower and I can tic-tac-toe and come in to help. We'll, we'll add that. Yeah. Because I think it's, I think it is important um, to continue to have people to to um, share where they think they're strong, their strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and it'll also not just educate those around you so they can step up, um, but also allows, uh, there's a level of self-awareness. And, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that, can, I, uh, can, I, uh, can I suggest yeah, something please. to add to that exercise yes. to make it even yeah. more rich and full? Next time you do that, instead of having the person stand up and, and present that, have break the people up in pairs and have one person tell that to the other person. And the other and that person tell that to and then the other person has to then introduce the person they just talked to right because what's happening now is now you have a, an exchange going on between two people and you are right. really learning how to listen empathetically understand this human being and then you get to introduce and it's creating a bond and a level of 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 awareness Love there that. um and also in that pair grouping you may actually get a little bit more vulnerability versus someone who stands up and has to say it in front of the whole room totally right. you're, you're yeah. i think you're spot on that's a, a great exercise and we'll certainly do that i love i love that um i want to talk about team ability because that's yeah. kind of a new word i've heard a few times but what does that mean when you when you use the word team ability well i stole it from the seal teams <laughs> i don't yeah. know where they got it um but it's this idea of what are those things required to uh to to operate as a team and operate with other human beings and so so team ability is really the category of attributes that that speak to this ability and there are four attributes that that speak to this and that's integrity um conscientiousness uh humility and humor 
Um, and those four things usually are, are necessary for others to begin. Again, team ability is like leadership. We don't get to call ourselves a leader and we don't get to call ourselves a good teammate. Other people decide whether or not we are someone right. they want to follow and other people decide whether or not we are a good teammate. So they do that based on the way we behave. These behaviors stem from these attributes and the attributes that they stem from when it comes to team ability are integrity. Uh, are you doing the right thing in the context of how the team defines that? Okay, because quote, do the right thing can be subjective based on the team, right? Yeah. Are you conscientious, which means are you showing up? Are you, are you reliable? Do you work hard? Are you diligent? Okay. Um, do you have humility? Because again, arrogance will, will in, introduce toxicity into any team environment. Um, humility, and humility is not this stigmatized thing of, hey, I'm just, I'm on a knee with my head bowed. Humility is, hey, I know what I have confidence, but I, I also know I can learn something. I always have something to learn. I'm here to help. I'm here to learn. I'm here to do my part. I'm here to support. And then humor. And humor is really important, I think, because humor, holistically, the power of humor, the chemical uh, uh, benefits that we get from laughing alone. Um, I've never encountered a high-performing team that doesn't have class clowns that make us laugh when things are tough. One of the things I miss the most about the SEAL teams, people ask me all the time, one of the things I miss the most is the humor, is the laughing. I mean, I remember laughing until I was crying and the, the, the environment around us was miserable, right? right? Someone would crack some stupid joke and we just laugh. And that's, I mean, it's that's insanely powerful. powerful. It's yes. a powerful moment, yeah. I love that. And tell us about the Mind Gym. I know this is something that, yeah. Uh, yeah. So Mind Gym was something when I was running the, when I was running training, I also, my other duty, in addition to figuring out the selection process was to start helping figure out how we could be more resilient and figure out how we can do better from a human performance standpoint. Um, I and a few other people felt like we were pretty good physically. We had it locked physically. In other words, it didn't, you know, to bench more weight didn't really matter. To run the mile faster didn't really matter. So we felt like the next level was our brains and developing a working relationship with our brains because we have to understand once we start, when we understand our brains, our physiology, our nervous system, how all it interacts, we can actually directly begin to shift our physiology in ways that takes us, for example, out of sympathetic response into parasympathetic response, out of out of cortisol production into DHEA production, so out of action into recovery, and actually begin to manage our physiology in a way that allows us to micro recover and do better from a performance. So the Mind Gym was really an experiment where we were just kind of finding hey, Rich, things. Before you say anything, I'm, I'm, I'm envisioning this either happened through meditation or drugs. Go ahead. <laughs> well, no, well, well, we didn't do the, we didn't do the latter. Uh, the former was something that people did, but again, even meditation, I don't like I don't med I love meditation, but I don't meditate very well. So so the idea is uh, what is meditative? What is a meditative state? And are there other ways you can get into those types of states other than sitting and doing meditation, which for me, for example, I go running in the woods. And so when I'm running in the woods, no clock, no time, no another no other people, no headphones, that's that oneness with nature allows me to become very meditative. So that's cathartic. It's recovery for me. So the idea is understand your own brain, understand your own physiology, so you have to figure out what works. Um, and so we, we had like full tanks, we did we had HRV breathing, we had mental acuity drills. We threw a bunch of things against the wall. Um, it, 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 I think there's still stuff going on. I mean, it, typically when you're in charge of something in the military, you're only in charge for a year and a half or two years. And depending on what the next guy <laughs> in charge right. thinks, right. It, it may or may not continue. So, uh, but we, it was certainly a fun experiment. And, um, and certainly guys, some guys got into kind of this cool relationship with their brain and start understanding their physiology a lot more.
And so what changes came out of that? So if, if I was, if I chose the float tank or running, yeah. that was my zone. It was know? tough. Unfortunately, mental performance is a very difficult metric to measure. And so, okay. uh, and the time frame we had, which like we did it over the course of 18, 20 months, we didn't have a lot of time to be able to, to call a lot of data. I will say like float tanks, for example, the guys who were having trouble sleeping found that doing some float tank stuff really started helping them sleep better um, and and recover better. So some guys really found a niche inside of that place that they really liked. Um, uh, they go back breathing. to a place of comfort, right? Yeah, yeah, where they can they can really kind of de they can recover, they can get get things off of their they can really begin to uh, rejuvenate. Um, and then HRV breathing is something that guys are doing a lot more of. Again, HRV breathing allows us to get into more coherence in terms of our our breathing, our physiology, our nervous system. So that we're actually we're actually kind of dancing in between sympathetic and parasympathetic in an optimal way, and really managing our energy outputs both physically and neurologically optimally. Um, so HRV breathing was another one that people seem to like. Yeah, because that, that seems interesting. Because even for you, running is it it's a physical activity, but it sounds like that was a uh, resting place for your brain. That was yeah, that was yeah. a healing area for your brain. That's the, that most a lot of people find that, and and they've they've done studies where a little bit of activity, a little bit of movement uh, that doesn't require a lot of thought uh, allows like tai people tai chi, walking, um, mm -hmm. hiking. It could be running. Some people surfing, right? They, I mean, it, whatever whatever those physical activities are, where your body has some movement going on, it's actually flowing. The, the juices are flowing. And a lot of people get, I get my best ideas when I'm, when I'm jogging a lot of times. So. Absolutely. You did some work with Simon Sinek. Mm -hmm. You know, I think some people find that uh, they must find that quite interesting. I was curious, I mean, this, this, and I know you've run these exercises. I, re I read some comments online that said you were fabulous at it. Can you walk us through high level, Rich? How do people find their why? Yeah, that's a process. <laughs> um, right. the, um, and I, so I would recommend the book, Find Your Why, which is yep. something, and, and what, what Simon did brilliantly and his team, they figured out, hey, let's just, let's just publish this. Let's publish the way how people can do it. Because they have exercise and you can go to the organization, they can help you with this. But, but ultimately, finding your why involves collecting and understanding some stories about your background, some highs and lows. Um, and you typically want to try to do this with a partner, but they by by telling these stories, you can you can generally find a thread of congruency, mm -hmm. and in that thread of congruency, there's likely your why. Um, and so uh, that's probably the best way I can describe it to you verbally. Yeah, I get it. But I but I would definitely recommend someone grab that book or go to the go to the their site because they have programs that can help people do that. So yeah, love that. So so before we enrich, what what's a key headline for you. What have we not talked about that you're thinking about, that you're talking about? Yeah. Well, right now we're really uh, focused on getting this content and these ideas out to people and organizations and saying, listen, if you want to perform optimally um, through any environment, challenge, uncertainty, stress, whatever it is, flow states, you need to understand performance from a level of attributes. And so part one of that is to understand what attributes you bring to the table. And again, I don't know if I mentioned this, all of us have all the attributes. It's just the difference in each one of us, the levels to which we have each. So for example, adaptability, I might be a level eight, which means um, you know, when the environment changes around me outside my control, it's fairly easy for me to go with the flow, right? Someone else might be a level three, which means the same thing happens to them, it's difficult for them. So, so all of us have different levels of the attributes. It, it behooves us to understand where we fall on these things. So it starts to explain our performance. 
Um, and then as an organization and team, understand what are those ones that you're really looking for and looking to capitalize on. The attributes required for, again, being a salesperson are going to be different than the attributes required to be a SEAL or a, a personal security, whatever it is. So we're really helping people do that. And I think that's what we're excited about over the next, since the book and over the next you know, several years is, is really help refine that process and help people figure this stuff out. Because the key is, the trick is once you start thinking about attributes, and seeing them, you can't unsee them. And I joke about this all the time. You know, you start looking at performance completely differently. So, so even you, next time you go to hire someone or put together a team, you're going to be thinking attributes. You're like, okay, wait a second, what am I looking at um, versus just skill? And that's a, it's a real superpower when you're picking team. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, my experience is that there's attributes about the performance side, and there's attributes if if it's defined that that drive culture. There's both sides of this fence, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because culture is, in fact, behavior, right? I mean, all of it, all of it comes back to behavior and how we behave. That's what I'm really interested. In. I'm really interested in what I call elemental human behavior. Who are we at our most raw? Peel back all the layers. Who are we? And attributes is one of the first steps because they're very they're inherent. And and oftentimes the saying is, hey, we we find out who we are during times of those really hard times when it's really stressful and challenging. That's when the real us shows up. I'm like, okay, let's let's figure out the real us because if we figure it out first, then we know who's going to show up when when, totally. when something happens, right? So that's what I'm keyed in on. Well, Rich, look, thanks, um, thanks for showing up today, and thanks for your service, your leadership, and your continued education for everyone. I, I think it's fabulous, and I've got two pages of notes to digest. And thanks for that exercise. We're going to run that as well. I really appreciate that. And and uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for all that you do. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate being here, and uh, pleasure to be here. Let's keep in touch. Absolutely. For more information about Rich Divini, his book and work, please follow him on LinkedIn or go to theattributes.com. To learn more or purchase the Scaling Culture Masterclass series, please go to scalingculture.org. And if you're enjoying the Scaling Culture podcast, please subscribe and share. We'll be back in September with another incredible guest.